Alright, welcome back. It's day two of the still unnamed podcast. So I think one of the things I'll cover, and I really want your participation, is uh, if I haven't named it yet when you're listening in, is what should the name be? But today I'm going to talk a little bit about a bunch of sort of random things here. Um, Going to jump in on the uh, what is a PM debate and the value of that. Uh, what is meritocracy? Good arguments, bad arguments, and Bitcoin and AI. Um, so I still want to think about what the name is. I'm going to the comments if you have some uh, thoughts and just add them right there and I'll um, give a shout out. But uh, for those who are in tech, even if you're not in tech, it's probably worth listening to. There's something called the PM debate. What do you need them for? And that's been a role that I've had. And I definitely struggled because the definition wasn't clear. And I realized had I set clear grounds on what the definition might be, it might have made things a lot easier. I don't think it would have guaranteed success. But PM sounds like one of those roles that you see in a Dilbert um, cartoon. Somebody who doesn't really do anything and they're not really needed. And there seems to be some sentiment that they aren't needed. Particularly when there's these layoffs. And it was characterized as it's basically an orchestration role. And if you have an orchestration role, it's something that occurs when um, people can't, like, get their stuff together. Like if they were, everybody is perfectly well aligned, you actually wouldn't need one. So that's that's what the argument says. And that really the role can be squeezed out by uh, designers who can design what the product looks like, talk about the user experience, um, and then capture that user flow. And then engineers go ahead and build it. And actually there are times I think that that is probably true. I mean, if you actually could design something that looked great with all the pixels, maybe they're skilled enough to do some front-end work. They weren't just making things pretty. I know that design is really making the move from it's not about the appearance, it's about the user experience, and I wholeheartedly agree with that. From onboarding onwards, and then you just build it, then that would be true. I think the issue is about who has those backgrounds. There are some more of designers who don't really think holistically about what is the user experience or how to prioritize what is the right user experience. And so these are really functions. Um, and I think the right way approaching it is wh are, what do we need to build so that the product is compelling, profitable, and growing. There are designers who can make it look nice, but when I, for example, ask them, why did you add such and such a feature, or why did you put something in here, something I didn't even include in the spec, they'll run through some logic, and at the end of the day I'll ask them, but is that gonna have the biggest business impact, and is that really, a better user experience to add more things for them to do, more cognitive load. 
and then they'll sort of back off and say, well, no. So that person was a designer in this instance, but I would say that if that went straight to engineering, it would have missed a bunch of things. So my, my feeling is it's moving away from treating things administratively and, and probably one of the skills a product manager really should do and I'm pushing more into is, is the user experience. I, I've always felt being comfortable with the um, wireframes and being comfortable to show them to customers and distill what they want is actually a valuable skill. And if you have great wireframes, making it look good at that point, once you figured out the user flow, the edge cases, the personas and match them to that, all that I think is actually also a product manager thinking about what the experience should be really in big chunks within wireframes. Like I love using balsamic as an example, which makes things look like you just wrote them on the back of the napkin. And I think that that's actually a great way to think about things because once you need to get to high fidelity, arguably you can just outsource that at that point. Um, it's better to have someone in house because there's a, there's a, there's an artistry, there's a look and feel that you just, you kind of need to be around the same people, the same ethos, drinking from the same water, um, working at the craft on a daily fashion that I personally think benefits from being totally in-house. But if I were thinking about things in a pinch, such as the app I'm building as a side hustle, using no code, which really abstracts away some of the engineering work, um, and doing the layout is easy, um, but I don't know how things will look, but I can use a wireframe and I can talk to people and say, what do you think? And the valuable skill really is kind of like pulling the right dots together at the phase that you're in. So my really is, I think it's about go to market. What's the messaging, understanding the user experience and then building an MVP and pushing it out. So I think there are a lot of things that are changing. I think all of those functions are collapsing into some kind of role. And maybe what it is is the titles are shifting around and it'll just depend on the nature of what you're building. But I think, you know, being new into the industry and kind of like trying to gain the skills and seeing all the thrash I think really at the end, the right thing is, I think how Facebook does it, which is determine why we're building and what we're building. And we're gonna have somebody else manage the actual how and when it gets done. Because those can be different skills. And I think the fact that it's actually unclear to many people is a detriment. So let me know what you think. Maybe this was a boring topic, but I thought I'd just throw it out there. Is It's more than orchestration. It's just what needs to get done. And I think the things that are gonna be a question is just, it's gotta be about the environment. You know, it's, it's probably the closest thing is if you're a loco person, you really should be mostly a product person building something. Right, in the sense of what am I building and how am I gonna how am I gonna grow it?
but sort of like the next step related to that, why it's such a fuzzy role and why it causes so much thrash is there needs to be, or there's a drive to have a metric to prove it's growing the number of users or the activity or the revenue because otherwise it gets back to, well, it looks useless. Engineers, they produce code. They did something. The designers, they create designs. They produce something. And a lot of product managers, it's it's slides and specs. And so it looks like nothing got done. So they kind of need to take that onus, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how it's done, what's the spirit in which it's done, is to actually create, you know, value. And so the topic of meritocracy came when looking at this lawsuit against Harvard around Asians and actually wasn't about that topic, although I tied it in because it was so topical, is removing legacy. And the person was making a very simplified and simplistic argument oh, well, let's just get rid of legacy. It's just clearly bad, so let's remove it. And my argument was, but what about those who have not benefited from the legacy? And for whatever reason, she just couldn't get it. And, and I think there's that's part of the, the thing I'm realizing is having conversations with people who can understand analogies. And I think there's some training that is actually limiting people from making analogies because they expect things to be so tight. So this person was a lawyer. And the comparison that I made was what has happened in San Francisco where um, roughly, I believe my understanding is that um, homes that are passed down are now going to have a uh, taxation rate on the value of the home after it's been passed down. And this is new, but it creates a greater taxable event for families that are passing down their, their homes. And the argument has gone that, well, for Asians, they're, they're very recent comparatively here to have actually been able to save and pass along a home. That's their only form of wealth, generational wealth, and it's now, now being taxed. Whereas those prior years, multiple generations have been able to pass down that unit of wealth. Now, she couldn't understand it. She just said, well, a legacy at colleges is not the same. It's not a good analogy as um, real estate because they're different. And I just was like, but they're both economic goods. A house represents an economic value and the opportunity of getting to college. But I think her legal train just said, well, house does not equal college. And this woman just struggled. And I tried to explain it's an economic good. And, and I realized it was just, there's a technical concept of you get into college. And then there's a technical concept of you get a house and she couldn't make them fit. So I'm gonna explain it here in the podcast in more clarity because it doesn't go anywhere with her. She just got hung up, could not make the analogy. So getting into college of a higher stature, we're gonna call an economic good. Let's call it a value of $100. And let's say um, a home 
is a hundred dollars. So it's some economic value, right? It's not no economic value. Otherwise, why would we be fighting so hard to get into schools? So hopefully that that's obvious to my listeners. Because if everybody's like this woman who just could not understand that there is an analogy here, and, and please put in the comments if you agree that the analogy isn't good. Whether you agree with my analysis or not. So when there's a taxation that's just started with people who just are coming into home ownership, I'm saying, well, that's not fair because they didn't have the benefit of tax-free for multiple generations. Similarly with legacy. So legacy admissions says that there's an increased probability that you get into this cause of which your legacy your parents went through, whether you meet the other criteria, which is sort of like athletics or uh, grades or some other thing. And that also is a new phenomenon, which people are saying. And so this woman was saying, oh, it's great that we're taking it away. And she was Asian, by the way. And she was saying, yeah, it's great to take it away. It should be just taken away. And I said, no, but I think you need to look at it from a time perspective. Is that right when a large proportion of Asians can benefit from a legacy inheritance, we're taking it away. No, it should all be taken away because that's free and it's racist otherwise. (laughs) And then by the way, I am not going to identify as Asian because doing so is a racist lens. Like there's just a lot of, somebody tell me why. Anyway, so then she concluded her argument by saying, well, her side has a lot of meritorious arguments and so it will win. And I kind of wanted to say, but I was like, you know, I don't think it's going to be a worthwhile conversation to go further, that the meritorious label is a calorie-free label. Like, of course, your side is going to say it's meritorious, but the other side is also meritorious. So what, what does that do? And it made me really think about legal rhetoric versus logic. Like I could see it just almost felt like a very familiar pattern. You know, I had a former potential co-founder, we were evaluating, he was a lawyer and kind of did the same thing. And then I have a relationship with someone who's also a lawyer. And I noticed that when it's time to make an argument, many of them, I'm not saying all of them, there's a class that doesn't do this, but it, it becomes about the language and the rhetoric as opposed to about the substance. And if they can't understand an analogy, they try to dismiss it, it's bad. It doesn't make sense. Or they find some nuances, well, it doesn't work, as opposed to working with, well, here's where it works and here's why it doesn't work and just giving it. But she didn't even give, here's why it doesn't work. And and I'm finding that that's a common rhetorical pattern just to say, it's wrong, it doesn't work, but there's no substance. And I I, I don't know whether it's just bad education. It's the nature of the training that you just say, I object and it's wrong and that's sufficient without giving substance or I'm just running into a bad batch. But there's something peculiar about that form of education. So if you're a lawyer or not a lawyer and have some familiarity with this, you know, 
jump in because it's it's very strange. I would have expected the logic to be cogent and clear, but instead it's just very rhetorical to just say you disagree or it's wrong without any substance. And I, I, I if that's the case and that's actually the outcome of the training or it's the outcome of there's too many people in law school and so you have a normal distribution curve of just raw ability to articulate things and so they're now equipped with these rhetorical skills but they don't have the foundational skills of thinking and critical thinking and so that's what you get is you get aggressive people who use rhetorical skills without critical thinking, and then maybe maybe that's what's explained, but this this consistency is just too much. There's gotta be something, to, but then again, it's a sample of three. So take it for what you will. But if you have some thoughts on logic, rational, um, if you've ever had a debate a, a lawyer, or think through the logic, if you have this, yourself some thoughts on this idea of legacy, like, whether it should be completely removed all at once or maybe there should be a time scale of what types of people had it for longer and that that introduces a lot of weirdness because it tends to break down by race which is the very thing people want to move away from so i don't know uh, i think that there's just a big brouhaha about saying okay if something is slight and obviously there's some things that came personally she kept coming up with how she hadn't gotten to harvard how she had went for an interview and that, that must have come up at least three to four times um in fact in another conversation i don't know why we're just in this social circle had gone chased down the actual interviewer from decades ago to kind of like s say what the experience was for not getting into harvard so um perhaps that's something to do it and so I'm just realizing maybe my takeaway is, look, and I sort of got to that point at the end, um, people sometimes argue and have a point of view, but not because they have a good reason for it, like reasoned meaning logic reasoning, but she's pissed that she didn't get into Harvard and so wants to take down the legacies, but part of my argument would be removing the legacy would not have increased her chances. And so, you know, there's that. So, um, Bitcoin and AI. Boy, my podcast has already hit 18 minutes on this and I kind of wanted to just be sort of this chill podcast that's quick bits of controversy here but inviting you i remember the primary thing is inviting participation this isn't going to go anywhere unless you kind of jump in and say yeah you agree you disagree you have a different point of view a different topic but then the last one is just starting to read some very interesting thoughts and i am 100 percent in agreement i myself was thinking about writing a little i don't know essay or something around Bitcoin and AI, and I think these two go together um, like peanut and chocolate. I mean, you know, AI is going to need a way to pay for its services. People are going to need to pay for its services. AI services are going to need to pay other AI services for their services. Um, 
And Bitcoin just seems to make sense to be able to pay for them in micropayments that are totally trust, trustless um, and yet reliable form of currency that's digital and that does not have the, um, the counterparty risks of central finance. And so it really does make sense, and especially the association of Bitcoin as being a denomination of energy spend or energy consumption um, uh, and how that will tie in ultimately to AI is needs to be denominated in energy consumption around and that, and that sort of is a proxy for perhaps compute and this just makes a ton of ton of interesting sense about where the world is going with that so uh, i am very curious what you think do you think this is also sort of a scam is this an interesting topic at all what do you want to hear but you know that's my takeaway is um well, the other more controversial one, which I really want to go and read more about it, but there apparently was a paper or article which said Bitcoin itself, by having an objective function in a distributed network, was itself a form of AI, which would be amazing. Amazing idea. Uh, so what do you think in this late night sort of exploration of the underground anarchy that's in my mind and trying to push the boundaries like nothing that I've said is all that controversial but I want to hear from you let me know all right peace out